Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, it's hard to keep up with technological change. It's happening whether we like it or not, of course. And that is no less true of something most of us have some grasp of, the web. It and with it, the internet are entering a new age. And author Alex Tapscott is with me to look into the future and chat about his book called Web3, charting the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. What do you like about your boss? What don't you like? On International Bosses Day, yes, there is such a thing. We get some insight on what managers are getting right, what managers are getting wrong, and the impact it's having on their employees. We also begin our week-long series tonight on collecting, collection, and collectors. What do we collect? Why do we do it? Dr. Shirley Muller happens to be an expert on both as a world-renowned collector of Chinese porcelain and a neurologist. She explains what makes her and other collectors like her tick. But first, we head to Israel, where President Biden is expected to arrive on Wednesday as Israeli Defense Forces continue to mass on the border with Gaza 10 days after that horrific Hamas attack killed more than 1,300 and wounded many more in southern Israel. They also took approximately 200 hostages, and we speak to the mother of one of those suspected of being held by Hamas in Gaza to hear the heart-wrenching story of their last conversation early last Saturday morning. I've spent the weekend, of course, like so many people, watching events unfold in Israel and Gaza and in neighboring countries as well, wondering what is next. Uh, U.S. President Joe Biden is on his way to the region to visit amid the Gaza crisis and, of course, fears that this could grow into a larger conflict in the region. There have been skirmishes uh, today on the northern border with Lebanon, and that is a concern as well with Hezbollah, the Iran-backed group that is there. Uh, the Israeli Defense Force continues to build up and stage troops and equipment along the border with Gaza, uh, a reminder that at least 1,400 people have died in Israel since the Hamas terror attack. On October the 7th, Israeli airstrikes in response have killed an estimated 3,000 Palestinians, at least according to uh, local estimates. Hamas urged people to ignore Israel's evacuation order. Um, that's to for people in Gaza to move south, away from the north, to uh, allow for this, uh, this move in by the IDF to try to find Hamas, to root out Hamas. For the first time today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke to Parliament about the ongoing situation in the Middle East, uh, the first time at least since those attacks were uh, week ago Saturday. Five Canadians are reported to have been killed. Uh, otherwise, there are about 200 people believed to have been taken hostage uh, by Hamas. Here's the Prime Minister. Let me be clear about Hamas. They are not freedom fighters. They are not a resistance. They are terrorists. Terrorism is always indefensible, and nothing can justify Hamas's acts of terror and the killing, maiming, and abduction of civilians. But let me also be extremely clear that Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people nor their legitimate aspirations. The Prime Minister today, one million people apparently have left the north of Gaza to head south after evacuation warnings from Israel. Israel. And the Prime Minister today also spoke of a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the West Bank. Canada is calling for unimpeded humanitarian access and a humanitarian corridor so that essential aid like food, fuel and water can be delivered to civilians in Gaza. It is imperative that this happen. 
My next guest, though, asks the obvious question here. He says Israel must smash Hamas, but then what? Uh, Chuck Freilich is a former deputy Israeli national security advisor. He teaches political science at Columbia and Tel Aviv universities now. His books include uh, Israeli national security, a new strategy for an era of change. And he joins me now. Chuck Freilich, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been, I mean, this, this, for someone who knows how this works uh, and has watched other events unfold over the years, tell me what you're thinking tonight just about what we've seen in the last week and where we are tonight, especially with the president heading to Israel, we believe, uh, shortly. Well, I think the, the biggest thought that I have at this moment is just the horror of what has happened. This is unprecedented in Israel's history since the War of Independence in 1948, the first time that Israeli towns and villages were overrun and the people slaughtered. Um, Clearly a huge intelligence failure on our part, but um, just a horror. This This is Israel's nightmare. You wrote a really uh, poignant op-ed in Haratz, uh, in Haratz last week. Uh, and, and the title, as I mentioned earlier, was simply, Israel must smash Hamas, but then what? And that seems to be the concern all around now. We're hearing it apparently from the White House as well, is, is there needs to be a plan here. Do, do, what, what do you think that, how does one execute that plan, given the circumstances? We all know how difficult a situation Gaza will be regardless. Well, there are various ideas being bandied around. So first of all, the assumption is that Hamas has to be destroyed as a military uh, entity and as a governing entity, and that this has to end, unlike all of the half dozen big rounds and umpteen smaller ones that have uh, taken place in the, what is it, about 15 years since Hamas came to power in Gaza, Uh, This has to end very, very differently, and it has to end with them out. But the problem is, of course, okay, uh, let's say you can destroy them militarily. Who takes over? Because the last thing that Israel wants is to remain in Gaza for any lengthy period of time. It certainly doesn't want to reoccupy it. Uh, So if Hamas is out and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad is out, that's the other primary organization there, who can take over? The obvious candidate would be the Palestinian Authority, which is supposed to be responsible both for the West Bank, West Bank and Gaza, but um, they've never been a terribly effective governing body anywhere. And uh, President Abbas is in his late 80s. It's, um, it's hard to see how the, the PA can be brought back in. Uh, There are other possibilities. Maybe there might be a temporary trusteeship, uh, some local uh, strongman who could take over for a while. But the the preferable uh, option would be for the PA to come back in. They can't be seen to be Israeli collaborators because then they would lose whatever uh, remaining legitimacy they have. And I think the real question is whether there can be some sort of international and Arab coalition, maybe a U.S. and Saudi-led coalition that might be able to provide the auspices for this. But even that's not enough because you're going to need somebody to prop whoever it is, uh, prop him up after he assumes power because there will be uh, remnants at best of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad will be trying to topple him. So the whole thing is a very, very uh, tall order.
It is. Um, when, you, when we look at, at the humanitarian situation in Gaza, I mean, I, I think anyone who, who looks at that area understands that Gaza is a very densely packed place, that Hamas intermingles with the population, uh, and it's very difficult to, to separate one from the other. Uh, but of course, the, the world will be watching this. Uh, and as you pointed out, the, the, you know, to be lured into something here is, is to, to overstep is perhaps exactly what Hamas has been hoping for here, to sort of fray the, the, binds, the bounds, or at least the fray the relationships that we've seen build over the past half decade or so between Israel and other Gulf states, between Israel and Saudi mm-hmm. Arabia burgeoning. How do, how do you do that? How do you walk that line? <laughs> this whole situation is extraordinarily difficult, and that just adds a, another element of difficulty to it. And, uh, of course, there's the hostages, about 200 or more. And there is a very significant possibility that the um, situation may escalate greatly, that Hezbollah will join the fray. Um, As a matter of fact, they may be waiting for Israel to enter uh, Gaza and from their point of view, hopefully get uh, bogged down there. And then that's precisely the time they join. And they and Iran have forces in Syria and maybe they join. And Iran has missiles deployed in Iraq and Yemen and, of course, can hit Israel from Iran itself with ballistic missiles, cruise missiles and drones. So there is a significant danger that this whole thing can escalate uh, greatly and we can find ourselves in a regional war. But then you have to ask, well, what are the options? I mean, one option is to say, all right, we're not going to respond very much at all or just another slightly bigger round than the previous ones. And then it's back to the status quo. After what happened, that's politically untenable in Israel. The people won't settle for it. Even if it was the right thing to do, it just won't fly politically. You can go up a notch and, let's say, say the objective is just to root out uh, most of the rockets and destroy the tunnels. They've got tens of – actually, it's more like hundreds of miles of tunnels crisscrossing Gaza, extraordinarily bloody house-to-house fighting. Uh, But again, if you just do that, it'll take a few months and then withdraw. Well, you haven't really achieved anything long-term. And there's the objective that the Israeli government has set officially, which is to destroy Hamas. And as we've already discussed, uh, that's going to be a very, very difficult mission. So getting all of this right is going to be immensely difficult. Uh, I don't think there is a much of an alternative from Israel's perspective. President Biden is arriving to talk about all these issues, I presume, and to talk about what kind of support and backing the U.S. can provide here. Yeah, I wonder if any of that backing, I mean, the support for Israel has been unequivocal amongst its allies, of course, amongst from Canada to the U.K. to, to, the, to the U.S. Right. Um, but, it, but in some senses, you would think there behind the scenes, there must be negotiations going on about what this might look like, uh, what this might, what this incursion, in, or not incursion, but what this move into Gaza might look like and what it might entail and just how far Israel goes. Well, of course, um... All of the people, all the countries that you mentioned are deeply interested in this, and Biden will be coming to discuss this. But I don't think that anyone uh, at this point thinks that there can be a major change in what Israel uh, seems to be um, bent on doing. It's just what happened was too earth-shaking in Israel. Um, I mean, this is really 
I think in Canadian proportions, this uh, per capita, this would be about 5,000 people slaughtered. In American uh, per, per capita, it would be 40,000. It's 13 9-11s. Right. I don't remember people urging a lot of restraint on the U.S. at the time. And I hope that the IDF, uh, having regrouped and has already spent a week, and, it, and I don't think that anything major will happen, certainly before the president leaves, brings us to Thursday. Uh, so it'll have had, uh, what, about 12, uh, 13 days to, to prepare itself, to train uh, the reservists, to bring them up to scratch, and to finalize the plans. And I hope it gets it as... Um, as right as possible under the circumstances. Um, when you look at the situation, at, at what, and you mentioned this already, the idea that this could break into a larger regional war, because it was just two weeks ago that, of course, we were reading about a rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Of course, the Abraham Accords are in place. It looked like things were moving in a certain direction. It feels like all of a sudden, for obvious reasons, that all of that has screeched to a halt and may be quickly reversed. And that seems like, for the long term, at least diplomatically, would be tough for Israel. It sort of saw a window of opportunity here for uh, greater collaboration or at least peace within the region. And that seems to have been, and you can see why its enemies would want to roll that back. Well, most certainly. And one of the objectives of uh, Hamas here and their Iranian allies was probably to help derail this process because I think Iran viewed it with uh, great fear that there would be an American-led uh, anti-Iranian axis or uh, alliance in the region of Israel and the leading Sunni state. And this was after just a f starting a few months ago, there was an Iranian-Saudi rapprochement, and things were turning around completely from their point of view. So that was probably one of the reasons that they launched this I don't think this is the end of the uh, rapprochement between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It will probably be delayed by a few, a few months or even more. But there might be a way to move that up in that in the end, somebody's going to have to take over uh, in Gaza. If, if it's, for example, the Palestinian Authority, well, under the terms of the normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel, the Saudis wanted Israel to make some significant concessions to the Palestinians. Maybe reinstating the Palestinian Authority and some, maybe some other supporting measures can constitute that, those Israeli concessions. Uh, that can give the Saudis what they need. Uh, it can give them the legitimization then for coming back to talks with Israel. That's one way of addressing it. When you look at what could be done in the very short term, clearly the, the hostages is a big issue and how to, how to try to save them is a big issue. Is there, do you think there is any room for negotiation here between Hamas and Israel at all in terms of humanitarian corridors, uh, working with the Egyptians to try to allow some people out through, uh, through the south of, of Gaza and to try to save these hostages? Well, first of all, there are no direct uh, contacts. There haven't been... Hamas is a terrorist organization, so Israel doesn't negotiate with them. Then now that doesn't mean, of course, that messages can't be sent through third parties. Uh, there was already a humanitarian corridor, and there's been an attempt to reopen the uh, Egyptian-Gazan border. These are all things that can be talked about. Actual negotiations, well, I mean, it's possible. There have been uh, hostage deals between Israel and Hamas in the past. Um 
they never had numbers, anything like this. It was one person, two people. It's going to be very, very hard to reach um, any agreement here because their demands are going to be sky high. Um, and Israel would then find itself in a position where it's not just uh, uh, individuals who are hostages, but in, point, in essence, the state of Israel would be taken hostage. And I don't think that's something that Israel can um, can allow itself. They're side for its own reasons uh, to make it look good that maybe they'll release some of the um, the foreign, the non-Israeli hostages. They're going to play the whole thing in any event for its maximum uh, propaganda value in some rather ugly ways. Well, Chuck Freilich, I appreciate your insight on this. Thank you so much. Thank you. In the last half hour, we were talking about the situation in Israel and Gaza. And of course, one of the big things that people have been focused on is the issue of the hostages, right? We don't know exactly how many people were taken hostage by Hamas during that attack a week ago, Saturday, in the south of the country, specifically those who were taken hostage um, from that big music festival, right? Right now, the Israeli military says Hamas is holding at least 199 hostages. It's not clear whether that number includes foreigners. Uh, Over the weekend, Global Affairs Canada officials confirmed that three Canadians are still missing. Of course, there have been five Canadians confirmed killed. Uh, The government says it's focused on trying to find the three that are still missing. It's unclear if they are indeed being held hostage. Steve Ganyard, who served in the U.S. State and Defense Department, says Hamas is keeping many of them underground. Hamas has had years to dig these tunnels because they've had to. No other way to hide their weapons, no other way to find ways in and out. They tunnel under fences to going into Egypt. So it's very, very tough for the Israelis to crack from an intelligence perspective. And it's why they will have to put troops on the ground. You can imagine what an agonizing time it's been for the families of those still missing. Today, Hamas did release what it claimed to be the first footage of an Israeli hostage. It shows 21-year-old Amaya Shem being treated for an arm injury. She speaks to the camera. She disappeared from the site of that music festival, as I mentioned, where 260 people were killed. She speaks directly to the camera in Hebrew, saying, "I'm at the moment, I'm in uh, Gaza, and she ends with a plea to return. Now, Mirav Lashem Gonen's daughter, Romy, was seen last seen around the same music festival. Uh, the 23-year-old called her mom as missiles started to fall and as thousands, including she and her best friend, ran for cover. And she stayed on the phone with her mom for hours afterwards as she and her friend tried to escape, winding up in another in a car, in a vehicle, driven by another acquaintance of theirs, fleeing for safety. That's when mom heard gunfire. And Romy told her that their vehicle had been shot at and that she'd been hit in the hand. And after, soon after, her phone would disconnect and Romy has not been heard from since, nor has mom had word about her since. She believes that she may have been taken to Gaza, that she is amongst those estimated 199 hostages that are being held there. That's where her phone appears to be. Now, families continue to call for the release of the hostages. They're putting pressure on the Israeli government to do more. They're obviously demanding the international community to do more. And clearly, they're calling on Hamas to release these hostages now. And to do so, they continue to share their stories to make sure that the world doesn't get a chance to turn away. Now, I spoke with Mirav Lashem Gonen a little earlier Today And I want to warn you in advance, this is a very emotional and difficult interview to listen to at times, given the circumstances that Merav and her family find themselves in. But she felt it was vitally important, 
vitally important, as painful as it is, to share this story, to share her daughter's story. So I began by thanking her for speaking with me at what is clearly such an incredibly difficult time for her and the entire family. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ben. It's been, uh, I, I mean, like it's, it's Monday now, end of Monday, where you are. Um, have we heard it? Is there any news? Is there anything new that, we, that you've heard at all in the last little while? No, no. no. The last time we spoke to uh, um, an officer from the, the Galilee Hills team was uh, on Wednesday. And uh, although we are in contact with him, they don't have any new news. We're still waiting. You know, tell me, I mean, I know you've told this story and it's it's such a such a heart wrenching one, but with the last time you spoke to Romy. Yeah. Well, she went to a, a party like any other normal kid that wants to, you know, have fun. She's twenty three. She's so uh, lovely and energetic and she likes the uh, she likes parties and she's working and lots of friends and like that. And they arrive uh, to the party at 4.38. We know that because her best friend sent a message to her parents saying, we arrived, everything is okay. And then at uh, 6.35, 34, it's funny because today in one of the, uh, on one of the places I went to sit, mm -hmm. uh, a soldier said that this was the time he heard it. They were on the, on the fence uh, near uh, Gaza. Right. That was the time that everything started. So at six six thirty five, she sent. Uh, she's she's calling me, uh, terrified. She's saying, uh, "Mommy, there are a uh, uh, rocket here, and we don't know what to do. It's it's a uh, it's an open space, no place to hide, no shelters, nothing. And we're afraid. I'm afraid. I don't know what to do now. I've never been to this area. I'm I'm not familiar. But it doesn't matter. There is an open space. She cannot do anything." And I said, wait, uh, ask uh, people around there. I'm, I'm sure somebody knows what to do because, you know, it's not the, the first time uh, there was an alarm and the uh, rockets, so they have to know what to do. And she said, no, nobody knows what to do. Everybody here is in panic. And uh, and then a few guys passed and said, oh, it's always like that. It goes oh, a few minutes and all over. Everything okay. Don't be alarmed. And um, they are, you know, they're a little less frightened, but the rockets are continuing, continuing on and on and on and on. And then they decided to run away. It, it was a little bit quiet, and they decided to run away from there, looking for the car, uh, Gaia's car, her best friend's car. It was hard to find a car, and then they, they found it, the car, and the, they want to drive, but, you know, it's a, it's a traffic jam, a huge traffic jam. Just imagine... More than 3,000 people were in these parties, two parties, big parties, festival. Mm -hmm. And they tried to run away, but they were standing uh, with a car for more than an hour. And then they started hearing shootings. And okay, well, they understood there is something big going on. And they, they didn't know what to do and then decided to run to the bushes. And we know everything because almost all the time we were on the phone with her, oh, wow. either me or, or her sister. So they ran to the bushes and I hear, we hear the, the shooting around them and they're moving from bush to bush, uh, running away from the shooting. And we were terrified. We were very afraid. And we're telling them, tell us where you are, send us places, you know, in the WhatsApp you can send a, a true... A, like a location, a, right? Yeah. A, yeah, 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 yeah. Real-time location, that's mm -hmm. it. 
and uh, they were terrified, very scared. And uh, we were talking, they were talking to Gaia's father. He decided to drive there, but Ashkelon, he was stopped because all the, the roads were blocked. We already understood there's something very big going on. And then uh, a very good friend of Gaia who already left the area with five kids decided to come back and rescue them. Uh, his name is Ben Shimoni. He arrived to the area with two other cars and they went on the car, his car, and together with them came also Fils of Fatih. Uh, his girlfriend went with another car and then they tried to run away from there. And they arrived to a junction and uh, at this junction stood a policeman and he told, they were the first car, he told them to go to the north, which we knew is not, it's it's not the right way to go because we oh. knew the terrorists were north, but they didn't know that. And the other uh, cars understood there is something wrong with this uh, direction, so they went south. And apparently this policeman wasn't a policeman, but a terrorist. Oh. And at 10.15, we got a phone call. From, I got a phone call from her. She was crying. She was saying, Mommy, I was shocked. This is a sentence which I never thought I would hear. No. Mommy, I was shot. They shot me. They shot us all. The car is, is damaged. It cannot run. Uh, Gaia is not answering. Uh, ben is not answering. I don't know what happened to them. And then I hear a guy talking and he says, I'm I'm afraid of fatty. Um, please call my mom. And he gave me a number. I don't yeah. know how in this old mess he remembered to say, you know, call my mother and give me the number. He was shot also. And, and they were bleeding, both of them. And she was telling me, Mama, it's like a nightmare. Uh, it's like a movie. And and I, I think I'm going to die. And I was, mm. you know, angry. You know, you're not going to die. You're going to live. You're going to take care of yourself. You have to breathe and be very calm so you will not lose blood. And you know what to do. She's a medic. She was a medic in the army. And I said, you know what to do. You have to take care of yourself and of fear. You have to bandage you. And she said, Mommy, I cannot. I'm wounded. I cannot do anything. And I was, and she said, Some, please send us somebody to help us. And I said, okay, tell us where you are. Tell me what the color of the of the car, what model, where are you? Now, and, and she was very quiet, very quietly said the color of the car. And I didn't know if she's uh, just quiet because we heard all the shooting around them. A lot of shooting all the time. It's, it's a nightmare. Like, I'm a mother sitting, hearing my daughter uh, sitting in a car, cannot move like, you know, she was a prison in that car. And then she wasn't talking. I was talking to her because I understood I have no way to help her, really help her. So I started talking to to make images in her mind, good images. And I told her, I love you. We all love you. You're very loved by us. And when you will get better, we will go to the coffee shop and we will sit and you will talk to me for two hours, say whatever you like to tell me and share with me. And we will go to the trips you want to go. I already knew it's 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 something that I don't know how it will end. I already understood it's it's something we never met until now. And then she was quiet and then only said, hello, <laughs> mommy. <laughs> and that's it. The next thing I heard was shooting around the car. And 
people shouting in Arabic, a lot of men shouting in Arabic, and somebody tried to start the car, but couldn't. And that's it. Somebody closed the call, and that was the last time I, we heard from her. Miravla Shemgonin is with us from Israel tonight. Her daughter, 23-year-old Romy, uh, has not been seen since she was at a music festival in southern Israel a week ago, Saturday. Um, she was on the phone with her mom, with her parents. She was had been shot. Um, we don't know, I, and, and we haven't heard from her since. Her phone appears to be in Gaza. Mirav, that is, I guess, the... That's the hope you cling to that that she's she's there that she's okay that she's that she may be released that that this may you may get to sit and have that conversation you were talking about uh, at some point. Um, what do you know about where she about what's been happening in the last week? Well, I'm not sure what I'm hoping for since I don't know what you saw in Canada, uh, but the the yes. pictures here are horrible. Mm-hmm. The things those terrorists did mm-hmm. to people here in Israel, uh, even without taking them uh, uh, hostages, but how they killed people, mm-hmm. uh, babies, pregnant women, elders. It's something I didn't see the, the pictures. I couldn't. I just heard about the stories and it's horrifying. Uh, so I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I I, I want to believe uh, that the... Uh, we will manage to find a way, Israel and all other countries of the world, because it's something you know that unites us, because in in Gaza, they aren't only Israeli. They are also American and mm-hmm. also a few other foreign countries. So it's something you know that uh, the gathers us all as, um, as a world. And so I hope this uh, strength around us uh, will take place and make sure that, uh, um, you know, they all come back safely. Uh, this is my only hope, I think. I guess um, the families have come together, right? I've seen the press conferences. The families yes. are, try- are pressing upon the government to make sure that, that those who could be in Gaza are the priority right now. Exactly. You said it uh, exactly as it, as it should be. You know, every country is based on the, on the people that lives in it. And uh, the people are always the most important thing in a country. Otherwise, there isn't a country. And the essence of Israel is the is all the uh, people that are now in Gaza. It's, it's babies, it's uh, elderly, it's uh, young girls, young boys, uh, everything. So this is the essence. This is the heart of Israel, and and this heart is now in Gaza. So yes, uh, this is the top priority. I know for you. I mean, I know there's you have uh, that Romy has four uh, four siblings. It, it must be an incredibly difficult yes. time for the family, but I, it, there must be strength in your family too. Yes, and now I'm. It's it's the first time uh, this week that. Uh, I'm leaving the headquarters at an early time. Usually um, we leave the headquarters at uh, midnight or maybe later even. But today, uh, two of my uh, my daughters, uh, my elder and, uh, and my fourth, uh, came to the headquarters and we left at 7 o'clock in the evening. It's very early. And we are all here with my mother and my sister and my two sons. And today we will have a dinner together uh, right after our interview. Mm-hmm. And we, we were laughing. There was an alarm. You heard the alarm because mm-hmm. there were rockets at uh, Tel Aviv just now. And we went to the shelters and we were laughing that Romy is not coming with us because she's uh, decided to be in Gaza so she cannot come with us. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's dark jokes, but it helps us. 
That's how you cope. They're very right? strong. Yes, I don't see any other way to do that. Well, Mirav, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, we we hope that she's okay. And thank you. I hope, we hope so too. We hope so too. And thank you very much, Ben, because it's so important to talk about it all the time and get the help of all the leaders. The, those that, who, are, who really see themselves as leaders have to, to step in. And as as uh, uh, Jake said, uh, mm. don't uh, turn your way. Don't turn, don't turn away. away. Don't look back. Yeah, don't look back. Look at us. Look at us in the eyes and think if it was your kids, your mother, your daughter, what would you do? Uh, so thank you very much for that. We're going to start a weekly series now that I'm pretty excited about. It's all about collecting, and it's about collecting different things. We have all different ways of talking about this. Let me ask you first, though, do you collect anything? And by, by collect, I mean really collect. You know, Is there anything that you have a lot of? Uh, we've talked about this a few times in the past, and people have shared some really interesting stuff with you know beer mats and beer bottles and all kinds. My cousin collected beer bottles. I have a cousin who's a real collector. He collected Star Wars figurines when we were a kid, but he didn't play with them as much as he collected them. He had those big carrying cases and he kept them all in place. And I was always pretty envious of that because when I was a kid, I just used the stuff, right? I never really spent much time trying to protect it or keep it, keep it in mint condition and so on. So we're going to talk about collections this week. Why do we do it what what do we collect and who are those who take collecting very much to the next level? It certainly seems to be something we love to do, right? From baseball cards to back scratches. Yes, there's someone out there who collects back scratchers. Expensive art to antiques, seashells to stamps, toys to vintage tableware, and just about anything else you can think of. Uh, someone collects it somewhere. Some do it casually. Some take it far more seriously. Some of us collect to collect, while others just like to own that many LPs, for instance, and actually play them like I used to before I started moving around all the time and had to shed. That's what you do when you move around a lot. You have to shed your collections. That's something that happens, unfortunately, but it is what happens. My next guest understands the how and the why of collecting. That makes her pretty special. That's because she is both a neurologist by training and a collector by choice. Her love is Chinese porcelain, but she's also an international, and she's an internationally renowned collector, an expert on it. But she is also well-versed on why she collects and why many others do so as well. Dr. Shirley Muller is a neurologist and, again, a renowned expert in Chinese export porcelain. She's also author of a book called Inside the Head of the Collector, Neuropsychological Forces at Play. So it is. It's both the what and the why of collecting, as told by someone who not only collects, but studies why the brain reacts to collecting in such a way. And Dr. Shirley Muller joins me now. Uh, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, it's, obviously, it's it's really interesting in your case because you were you were both a neurologist and a collector who then decided, well, why is it that I collect? Which is a great way of of approaching it. Tell me a bit about your collecting because that's really kind of the root of this in many ways, isn't it? You know, I started collecting porcelain because it allowed me to segue away from medicine. Doctors work up to eighty hours a week, maybe sometimes more, and uh, I was exhausted a lot of the time, but especially I was thinking about my patients all the time. We don't mean like 80% of the time. We mean 100% of the time. So in thinking about my patients, I was my mind was constantly turning around and I wasn't relaxed. But for some reason, reading about and collecting Chinese porcelain took me into a whole different sphere. 
and allowed me not only to relax, but to use my mind in a different way. I say some of the times it's almost as though it saved my life. It was that instrumental in that it allowed me to be a different person than a doctor. Wow. For for listeners who may not know, may not be able to picture Chinese porcelain, I mean, you see the the sort of the knockoffs a lot, the blue and white, right? The blue and white that is so familiar. And yet, what, what attracted you specifically to that as the thing that you sort of began to collect amongst all the other things you may have fallen upon? I think like a lot of people who collect, and there surely are collectors listening to your program, it heralds back to when I was in high school and I saw this uh, movie, The End End of Sixth Happiness, Mm -hmm. that uh, starred Ingrid Bergman. And she was uh, a woman who led Chinese children away from the invading Japanese during World War II. And I just thought, I want to be like this this woman. I want to do that same thing. But by the time I finished medical school, uh, there were a a few impediments. One, Mao Zedong was in China, and I really couldn't go there. And secondly, I had a a child and a husband of my own. So it seemed like medical practice was what I had in store for me. But along the lines of medical practice, I realized that I could still capture China. Reading about it, collecting, I learned so much more. And my heart then began to just swell with all of this uh, happiness, knowing about China as though I was there. And eventually I did get there five times. So it did fulfill itself. It did. Now, you, you, are, you are, were a neurologist. And, and I guess at some point you start to, this field begins to expand into what we know about motivation in the mind and so on. And you start to think, well, why is it that I do this? And it was really interesting. I've heard you discuss this already, that there was sort of, you were making irrational decisions when it came to your collecting, to some, at least by your own standards, irrational decisions when it came to collecting. And you were trying to figure out why that was, because we always think of, of you know, collections, especially as being something very rational. And yet it wasn't. And it's interesting how you got to looking into what is it about our brains that make us want and enjoy to collect things. Right. You know, I was a doctor, a physician. I was trained as a scientist. And I thought I was making rational decisions in every part of my life, including collecting. And then I began to notice when I read a lot and trained in, I, I would say, more in neuropsychology, that some of the irrational parts of me were just buying things when I didn't think about it enough. I didn't weigh the pros and cons. It was as though my pleasure center just went bonkers and I bought something and then I had it and I had to second guess myself, did I want this? And I wasn't so sure. And so I began to realize that if I was doing this, a trained person in the mind, about the mind, were other people doing the same thing? Were they just acting in the spur of the moment, buying objects, and then thinking, what did I do? I have found that a good way to handle that is to never buy an object within the first four hours for sure, or preferably within the first 24 hours, give it overnight, the usual logic. Sleep and on it. If you, yeah. yeah. If you still want it, okay. But it is so easy to make an impulse decision that that piece I have to have. It isn't that I want it. 
It's that I need it to fulfill myself or without it, I'll be lost. Wow. I'll be nothing. Surely, what are the things that it's novelty, right? Like there's something yeah. about finding, collecting, gathering, bringing back that we're kind of hardwired to enjoy. And, and, and that's what's at play to some extent and why we love to collect things. Exactly. It's a new and different that attracts us. And there's a reason, a neurologic reason for that. There's a part of our brain that is stimulated when we see something that is novel to us, new, different, that we ha- haven't seen before. And two areas in our brain light up, the substantia nigra and the ventral tegmental area. It's like they go on fire when we see something novel. Believe it or not, there's actually a gradation. The more novel the piece, the more your brain goes on fire. Right. And when you see that novelty, it's as though you do have to have it because you haven't seen it before and you think it must be so special. And the more you know about something, the more acute that must be. Yes, exactly. Because you've already uh, shifted through all the common things. And this is uncommon. And you know, it has to be desirable to anybody, not just to you. So uh, novelty is very important in collecting, collecting the novel piece. That's why we see those collectors who have these great collections that that contain all kinds of things that if you actually know what they're collecting, you'll be impressed by, right? I mean, that's, you know, the the, the rarities and and the first editions and so on. Right. Now, there's an evolutionary reason about why we like the novel. And the reason is our ancestors, when they saw something novel, new, different, those that pursued it and found that on occasion it was advantageous to them, they're the ones that perpetuated their society. And they're the ones that we're directly related to today. Uh, Those that wouldn't pursue something new or novel because for a variety of reasons, fear, whatever, those are the people who died out as our ancestors, but it was the more adventurous ones who were able to carry our race forward. One of the things I do today is, you know, I think about an analogy to AI. Mm-hmm. Writers such as myself who embrace AI, well, I don't embrace it. I don't, I'm not going to say that, but <laughs> let's say I used it once. <laughs> I can see where AI is entirely beneficial and that writers who use it and learn how to interact with it will have an advantage. So this is, again, pursuing the new and novel and trying to get ahead of the game, trying to advance. Right. Um, And it's part of sort of what Isaiah was saying, we're kind of wired to do it. So whether even though it's something like hockey cards, which you wouldn't think of something that sort of advances humans, you know, advances, advances the species. It's kind of wired from the same place. You're collecting things that are different. You're looking for things that are different. You've educated yourself. You know what a good one is, what a bad one is, what's worth what's valuable, what's not. And you've sort of put yourself in that situation to be able to collect with intent. Right. Exactly. Now, I know this isn't fair play, but I'd like to ask you, do you collect anything? I don't. Not anymore. I collected records for a long time because my dad did. Then I ran out of room. So so now I, now I collect good stories, unfortunately. But yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, I have, I, I, I am like everybody else. Like, I mean, I have enough cognizance now to think that's, you know, that's a great record collection or so on. But yeah, I just haven't, I moved a lot. And I think that really gets in the way of collecting, unfortunately, when you start to pick up, sort of uproot yourself and move around a lot, you kind of have to give that up. And it's sad. So I kind of collected experiences, I suppose, would be where I, what I ended up, what right. I ended up doing. Right. 
Not the same. Not the same. There are limits, though. There must be limits, um, surely, to all this, too. And you warned about this, that you can't, you got to watch about not taking it overboard, right? Absolutely. You know, well, people always say hoarders, but hoarders are so few in terms of percentage of collectors, like 3% or so. But hoarders get all the attention, mm-hmm. where serious collectors who enjoy it so much get less attention from the public. But uh, hoarders are obviously on one end of the spectrum. Another category that is less recognized is some people, very few, but are they have what I call a behavioral addiction. I think that there is a lot of evidence that uh, collectors can have a behavioral addiction where essentially they can't stop collecting, even though there are family issues that require them not to spend so much money, fights with their spouse who says, you have to spend more time with me. All of the advantage of collecting, which, you know, is uh, giving uh, someone something when you die, joining groups, enjoying your collection, putting it on shelves, organizing it, All of these interactions, which can really make you feel good, can be lost in some people because they just have this drive to collect, collect, collect. And every day they want to buy something. In your case, though, it's it sounds like it's brought you so much, so much lasting joy. Yes. And one of the big things for me has been the intellectual satisfaction So I've learned so much about the Chinese porcelain and about China, but also joining groups that also like to collect porcelain and interacting with these people. I know I know individuals all over the world and I've spoken all over the world and we immediately have a commonality. So it isn't necessary to say anything beyond, hello, how are you? And we start talking about porcelain right away. It's a community. It's a collective, yeah, a, co- a collective of collective of collectioners. Right. Uh, uh, Dr. Muller, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Every day seems to be set aside to mark something these days, right? Not just your standard religious and cultural holidays, but for instance, today is National Department Store Day, World Food Day. National Clean Your Virtual Desktop Day, which is actually a really good idea. I should have done that. And National Liqueur Day. Well, you get your point, right? You get the point. It also happens to be International Bosses Day. That's right, a holiday meant to celebrate managers and employers. Uh, But that's not really the point here. Instead, there is new data out showing how a sample of Canadians feel about their bosses or their managers or their team leaders, if you prefer, if you want to go down that road. And it turns up some pretty definitive, if not entirely unsurprising um, results. One of it is that people kind of like their managers. I think in general, if you sort of subtract the good from the bad, people quite like the people they work with and work for. But here's one of the standout ones. Of the almost 40% of employees who are experiencing more burnout than they were a year ago, nearly a third of them attribute that directly to a lack of communication from their manager, right? So there are things out there that impact people, right? And communication tends to be the one that it really boils down to. And I'm sure all of us, including myself, have been in situations where you're either the manager or the managed. And, you know, the communication part is tough, especially these days when everybody's rem- – so many people are still remote, right? It creates some issues. Um, but Robert Half looked into this stuff, and we thought we'd find out more about it. So Cal Youngworth is Director of Permanent Placement Services at Robert Half Canada, and he joins me now. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Ben. I never heard of Boss's Day. I mean, I, there's a lot of days out there. I'd heard of different ones involving employees, but Boss's Day is an interesting one. An interesting time to kind of look at the whole 
challenge of being a manager and a boss these days because I know from having done it myself for a while that through the uh, the height of the pandemic, it, it was tough. There's been a lot of demand on, uh, they don't get a lot of sympathy sometimes, but there's been a lot of demand on managers and bosses out there. Yeah, I know. Absolutely, Ben. You know, it's it's not easy being a leader. You know, number one, I'm not a huge fan of the word boss, but yes. manager, leader, I think that speaks to it a little bit better. Uh, they're not easy positions to be in. Uh, many people aspire to be in a leadership position, but uh, there, there's a reason that it takes a lot of hard work to get into one of those roles. And uh, maybe they deserve a little bit of appreciation as well on a day like today. Right. Now, you went out and asked uh, people just about their impressions of their bosses. And I suppose managers get feedback quite often, but this was an interesting one. Uh, what exactly? I mean, wh- who did you ask and, and what have they? What did you find out? Yeah, you know, we pulled uh, close to 300 LinkedIn users and we just simply asked them, you know, does your boss or what does your boss do that makes you feel valued and supported? Um, and the answers and the feedback is a lot of common sense, but, but I think it's worth going through. So number one, they, they look forward to having a leader or currently report to someone right now that recognizes their accomplishments. So that's just simply recognition. People don't want to be taken for granted. And they just want to be valued and and listened to. And that's exactly what kind of the second most important thing was, was people just want to have the ear of their leader. So they want to be listened to. And uh, it doesn't mean that they expect that their leader to do everything that they would then request their leaders or bring these ideas to the table. But they just want to have a have a voice. Right. And I think right. that's all we could ever ask for. And then finally, they're, they're looking for leaders that will help them with their personal development, uh, our careers, our journeys, our professions. That's a that's truly a journey, right? So they're they're looking for a leader that will help them be the the best version of themselves. Right. Which I, I gather all three of those in some way, shape, or form are linked, right? If you think about recognizing accomplishments, listening to values and ideas, and encouraging development, to some extent, it's all sort of, am I on the right path? And can you help keep me on, or can you help me on this path? Uh, is sort of the quid pro quo. I give you my time and my, and my brains and my work. And in return, you give me, uh, your, your, praise to some extent, or at least feedback. And you also treat me or value me as an employee. Yeah, it's, it's simply a matter of dialogue. These relationships, they're two-sided. They work both ways. They're not looking for necessarily a, a manager or a boss to tell them what to do every day, all day long. It needs to be a, a dialogue going both ways where there's communication and and you, know, you kind of figure out together the best path for each individual. What respects my time off was an interesting one, although it wasn't that high. 16% was where it fell, but I think it was fourth in total in that list of things that people are looking for. I'm wondering if that has changed at all. I don't necessarily think that's something that I remember talking about 10 years ago or 15 years ago, for that matter. I think you always hoped that your bosses or your managers would respect your time off, but it feels like that's become a more, uh, that's become a bigger conversation, specifically through the pandemic and, and out of it. Yeah, well, I think, Ben, this also speaks to where technology has taken all of us. Uh, 20 years ago, maybe if you left on vacation, you couldn't be reached, right? Now we've all got our phones and our emails and we're LinkedIn via different social media pages. So it's a lot easier, quite frankly, for an organization to reach out to one of their employees when they're on their, their vacation if they need something. And that's just where we really encourage leaders to to draw the line, absolutely. If you absolutely need to get a hold of someone, then reach out. But let's respect that they need time to recharge their batteries. And 
as we'll talk about, I think next, the burnout is a really big issue right now. People, people need to get away. And when I say get away, that's both like physically get away from the office and take some time away and then mentally get away from the office and truly turn it off. Yeah. One of the things that I've always found interesting and having been both a manager and an employee for, for years and years and years now at, at different times is that uh, it's important sometimes to try to, you know, if, if, if you're stressed out, I mean, often managers have managers, right? And, and the idea is you have to communicate down as to what the pressures you were facing are. So if you're sort of emailing at 10 o'clock at night, I mean, often you're supposed to be sort of be the gatekeeper if you can, but if you're emailing at nine o'clock at night about something urgent, it's probably because you've gotten an email from somebody so there's kind of a cascading effect here and sometimes keeping the lines of communication opening and as you you know as you mentioned off the top the kind of listening and valuing ideas if you keep those lines of communication open sometimes you can work that out in a way that that the word respects my time off becomes has a different meaning than just never calls me off hours absolutely and i think it's just a matter of awareness more than anything again that email that gets sent at 10 o'clock maybe that's not a big deal maybe that's just a particular leader getting caught up on emails, right? But what happens when someone in a leadership position communicates off hours or late in the evening, that almost implies that that is then expected from their employee. And that's the wrong message to send. So sometimes even if that that email gets, gets uh, written but is not sent until the next morning, that sends a better message that, okay, I'm not expecting a response at 10 o'clock in the evening. You know, I want you to have a good evening. We'll talk about it in the morning, right? So, so again, I think it's just awareness and kind of what's communicated sometimes accidentally, quite frankly. Cal Youngworth is Director of Permanent Placement Services at Robert Half Canada. It is International Bosses Day. We're talking about uh, a survey that Robert Half has done uh, for of, of employees, really, uh, about their bosses, what they what they want from them, what they like to see from them, and also what the impacts of not receiving that stuff is. And so you sort of went to look, I gather from those who felt like some of the main things that they're looking for weren't being uh, provided and what kind of impact that has. And a lot of time people saying sort of being unhappy, well, it's actually not a huge one, but being unhappy with a boss is one of the reasons and, and a not insignificant one why people start to look for work elsewhere. Yeah, you know, there's an old uh, saying that says you don't leave your organization, you leave your manager. And I think this speaks to that. Individuals that have really strong leaders, really strong managers, they'll, 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 you know, they'll, they'll go into the trenches with those leaders and, and they'll stay with that organization, even if it's sometimes even not the best place for them to be. So no, it really speaks to kind of being with someone that you, you want to work hard with and for. Right. And, and you've mentioned that um, that lack of communication, and you, this is one of the top ones that people are looking for in a manager as well, but the lack of communication, you mentioned burnout, right, which has been a topic that people have been talking about a lot. Uh, I think people are, far, first of all, far more aware of their own mental health when it comes to work and trying to figure out how that works and how to maintain their balance for themselves. But, but you found that a lack of communication and support from a manager is a huge contributor to, I mean, it was nearly a third uh, who said that they were experiencing more burnout this year than a year ago. That you know, that was about a third of people who responded, about a third of them said that a lack of communication and support from their manager was a big, big factor in that sense of burnout, sort of that lack of support. Yeah, you know, I think what communication and support also leads us down to just being in a very transparent type of relationship. So sometimes individuals, they don't need to know absolutely everything, but if they don't know what's going on at any level, they'll they'll start to conjure up scenarios where how does this affect me as an individual so 
we really encourage leaders to be transparent as they can be, communicate with their teams in terms of what's going on. And just by doing that, that simple, hey, I just want to loop you in on something that that then kind of develops into this, okay, we're leaning on you. That's where the support comes in. And and, and again, it's just transparency, communication back and forth. Uh, and then as you spoke of the burnout issue, people have more in their plates than I think ever before. Again, part of that is technology. The world moves so quickly. So individuals, you know, even if you don't think they're going through a lot, sometimes they are. Some people hide their cards very well. So we, we encourage leaders again, just to have that dialogue, have the conversations. Hey, how you doing? Is there anything I could do for you? Is there anything your organization could do differently to help you perform your duties? Just that simple conversation will typically lead both sides to a really good place. Yeah. And because you mentioned as well that, again, in the same survey, about uh, a, a quarter of those who felt like, you know, felt more burnout this year than last, not only was was a lack of communication and support from their manager a big factor, but also no steps taken to, alle- no steps taken to alleviate it. Uh, so sometimes I, I guess employees feel like they've raised a red flag about this and it's not being seen. And that, that just exacerbates the problem. Yeah, and this is an important topic for employers to understand because at the end of the day, individuals out there, the employee, they've got choices in this type of marketplace. There's a lot of opportunities out there. Uh, the job market remains quite strong. We'll see where the economy takes us, but we, we think it's going to be a relatively tight candidate market for the foreseeable future. So if individuals don't feel like their concerns are are, are being taken seriously, if they don't see actions taken, they're going to take the action of looking for a new opportunity. And that's the last thing that any manager wants to happen. Overall, though, when you looked at the survey, I mean, just looking at the numbers, people seem relatively satisfied with their situations right now. I mean, even the, the, the level of dissatisfaction was was relatively low. Maybe Maybe that's not a surprise, but it seems like for a lot of employees that you spoke to, things are okay. Yeah, you know what? I think maybe this is a silver lining. We could take a little bit from the, the pandemic in that the topic of mental health and your mental wellness actually became a topic that you could talk about at work. So hopefully organi- or individuals feel a little bit more comfortable about talking to their leaders around, hey, here's what I'm going through. Can you help me out? Can the organization support me? And just by having, again, that conversation about mental health, I think that that's that's so much of kind of this battle that people are going through. And, and to your point, the, these aren't numbers that shocked us. Um, and it, it actually tells a really good story. Yeah. And, and, and I, th- I suppose if you look at the way the numbers break down, um, you know, l- the listening part of it, the communication part of it, because it's the, it seems like what cascades through all of it is sort of uncertainty. So I'm, you know, I'm working a lot. I don't know why. Uh, I'm burning out and no one seems to recognize that. And I guess there's a duty if you're an employee to to put your hand up as well, because I think sometimes, you know, the communication works both ways. And, and sometimes managers don't know what you're going through, right? And there's that kind of, the lack of communication seems to be really at the core of, of many of these issues. Yeah. And my message to managers in general is it's okay that you don't maybe have all the answers, Sometimes maybe managers feel pressure to have to be the one doing all the talking in that particular relationship. But yeah, sit back, let your employees get out what they need to get out, you know, listen. And when you're ready to speak, maybe listen some more. And and that'll get to the root of what the individual is going through. And then that's how you could help and support that individual. 
Yeah, because of course, losing people these days is in of itself. Uh, recruiting is, as you well know, recruiting is is tough these days. Finding people you like who know the job is difficult. And so, once you've invested the time and energy and bringing them on board, and and you know, and then they've invested the time and energy to come on board, it seems a shame for that relationship to fall down. No, absolutely. The best uh, talent uh, attraction approach is is having a good retention approach, right? If you never leave that individual in the, lose that individual in the first place, then you could uh, just kind of bypass having to hire a replacement. So yeah, take care of your people. They're the ones that make a business happen. Well, Cal, thank you so much for your insight on this. I appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. The internet. The web and the internet are entering a new age. Of course they are, because things, just when you figure something out, it changes. Uh, we've moved from the read-only web, that's the old web from the old days with the dial-up and all that, which had almost, which had some functionality for interacting with content, but you couldn't do much else. Then we had the read-write web, which we have now. We can, we can do all this stuff. There's so much way of collaborating, social media, you can shop. I mean, there's just a ton of things you can do online where you can read and write, sort of collaborate and do things. And uh, so what's next? My next guest argues it will be something he refers to as Web, web 3, the read-write-own web. And it's uh, the own part was what really fascinated me because I don't really get how that works. Uh, so what would it look like? He says it's a more decentralized internet where individuals own their own identities and can, can securely trade assets like money and securities, intellectual property, art, all of it peer-to-peer. Web3 promises a, a big shakeup of business, the biggest since the invention of double-entry bookkeeping in the Middle Ages. He says it is the Internet's new frontier. And, of course, frontier isn't always a great thing. It comes with a bit of fear, too. You don't really know what lies ahead. Alex Tapscott's uh, book is called Web3, Charting the Internet's Next Economic and Cultural Frontier, a Global Mail and Wall, Wall Street Journal bestseller. And Alex joins me now. Thanks so much. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is one of those, I, th- I feel like it's amazing when you look at the history of, uh, because, you know, there's web one, web two, and web three, and it happens at such breakneck pace. I think a lot of people are still trying to figure out web two, and here we are moving into a new uh, generation. But it is it is a very interesting future that we're looking into, and and, it, uh, and it's not, a, I mean, it's it's a surprising one to some extent, because it feels a lot more democratic all of a sudden. Yeah, I, I certainly believe so. I mean, I think Web3 has the potential to uh, democratize the web in a way that wasn't possible before. And I can explain what that means by starting first with what's Web1. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. There. Yeah. So um, Web1, I think what a lot of people remember as the dot-com era, was basically a way to consume content on websites. So you'd log on to the web and you could access images and texts, and you could read it and you could search for information, but you couldn't really interact with it. Um, you couldn't upload your own content and you weren't really using the web as a way to you know, find community or, or build your network. It was very much a broadcast medium, kind of like what came before. It was basically a kind of a digital version of newspapers, magazines, and so forth. And you know, while, while it was kind of primitive by today's standards, it nevertheless did one important thing which is a democratized access to information, at least for people who actually had an internet connection, which is a big if, because at the time, only a few people really did. But if you did, it didn't didn't matter if you were in Toronto or San Francisco or Mumbai, you had access to the same network of information. And that's like a very meaningful innovation. Web 2 accelerated the growth of the web significantly. In Web 2, the web became not only a way to consume information, but became a tool for us to upload our own content. 
to collaborate online, to build community. And I think the dominant business model of Web2 is social media, you know, companies like Facebook and Twitter and others. And, you know, Web2 had lots of positive things going for it. Uh, it certainly created a lot of economic value. $10 trillion of market capitalization was created in several large companies. It definitely spread internet connectivity throughout the world. Today, there are billions of people with access to the web, and that's a great thing. And it also gave people a way to share their opinions online, for better or for worse, but mostly for the better. You know, having a way to, to publish information is a good thing. So that's a good thing. But it came at a steep cost. Those big companies became monopolies in different areas, you know, Google and search, Facebook and social media, and stifled competition in those areas. Because user-generated data was the most important asset class of Web2, advertising became the big business model. And companies worked hard to keep people on those platforms with recommendation engines that, in my view, fueled a lot of misinformation and, I would argue, even some discord in society. Um, they also became choke points for government surveillance, and that, that's been certainly true in China behind the Great Firewall. The big internet companies have become part of the, the state. So overall, they, they created a lot of value, but it wasn't sort of the people who, who were involved in the value creation, internet users and so forth, didn't really fully participate in that. And a lot of it was captured asymmetrically. Right. So now the web is entering a new era, Web3, right? right. So if Web 1 made it easy to access information and Web 2 made it easy to publish information, then Web 3 empowers people with a new toolkit, a way to actually express ownership online, ownership of their data, ownership of their identities, ownership of their digital creations, um, of the value that their contributions might create, and, and the ability to transact peer-to-peer -peer financially. And all of those things are going to add a new economic layer to the web that in my view empowers individuals at the expense of platforms and is going to lead to a greater democratization of a wealth participation in the economy. It's interesting because the, because if we think about it, one of the things that's been so interesting, especially about people who sort of libertarians who yell about the government collecting their data, is how much data we've handed over to those platforms yeah. to allow them to monetize it. So in other words, we essentially I mean the they always said if the product is free, the you know the the product if it's free, the product is you, right? And and yeah. and that's what we become. We sort of become beholden to these big platforms, even though we feel like we dictate our own. You know, we have our own bios and we have our own brands and all these things, but ultimately we're on someone else's network. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, surfing the internet has become surfing the internet. S E R F. You know? Yes. Sorry, I think we said no silly jokes. No, that's again. a good one. That's a good one. No, I like, so yes, abs I mean, absolutely. No. We've become sort of, we, we've been monetized by companies yeah. who figured out what we want uh, in that experience. It's hard to imagine, and I know this is true of every phase of the internet, when you become so accustomed to Web 1 than Web 2, it's hard to imagine what comes next. Because I'm sure if back in 1995, as I was sort of with the dial-up reading Billboard online for the first time, someone had said, hey, the Airbnb will come along one day, or yeah. Uber, I would have thought it can't be true. Yeah, I completely agree. Oh, and by the way, that joke, I'm allowed to make that joke because I have two children, so I, I'm a dad. So <laughs> dad a, it's a good one. Dad though, jokes like are officially safe. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that in, in a lot of ways, it's it's the future is bright, but it's not always clear, right? And it's hard to predict the future. Now, I'm not someone who predicts the future. I'm actually someone who believes the future is something to be achieved, not predicted. But I am trying to like identify things that are happening today and to try and tease out kind of big themes and ideas that could play out down the road in the future. And to me, the idea that 
you know, we are going to have a new ownership layer for the web makes a lot of sense, uh, makes a lot of sense intuitively. And and by the way, that doesn't mean that, you know, web two companies uh, go bankrupt or go away or something like that. I think what's probably going to happen is that they're just going to miss out on the next era of value creation. You know, there are lots of companies from the first and second era of, you know, computing that are still around. You know, we still have Dell and HP and IBM, you know, they didn't go under, but they didn't capture the value of the internet. The internet, um, you know, was monetized by these big platforms. So the question is, you know, if $10 trillion of value is created in the hands of these large corporations, where's the next 10 trillion or $20 trillion of value going to get created? Is it just that are those companies just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger? Uh, or is there going to be a new period of of innovation. And based on my reading of the tea leaves, I think we're on the beginning of a new frontier for the web. But you do have some really interesting, uh, you look at, at some very important different areas of this. One of them, I think that's that's really fascinating because the moment people hear the word Bitcoin or crypto, they kind of, people will either have, will make up their minds almost immediately. And you've pointed out that this isn't, I mean, this is a, a, a first step in something. It's It's something, it's the beginning, not the end. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. You know, the the term Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in particular, I think causes a lot of confusion for people. Because first of all, um, this is one of many aspects of this revolution. But also the term itself is a bit of a misnomer. Most digital goods are not trying to be currencies. The best way to think about digital assets or tokens, as we call them in the book, is simply as containers for value. So in the same way that a website can be programmed to contain anything of information, it could be, you know, a podcast studio, it could be a storefront, it could be the classifieds, it could be, you know, where you get the news, et cetera, et cetera. A token can be programmed to represent anything of value. So it can be programmed to represent, you know, a stock or a bond or a piece of art or a collectible or some aspect of your identity. Um, Or it could be, you know, a vote in an election. Mm -hmm. Really anything that requires scarcity to have value can be programmed into a token. So think think of digital assets just simply as a blank slate for creating digital value. And I think just to extend the metaphor a little further, the container, um, Metaphor is a useful one because the original shipping container, the intermodular container, it's the standard thing. You see them everywhere, right? They go on trucks, they go on um, trains, they go on boats. It's the same thing. Uh, Some people say that that containerization of uh, shipping led to a four to five hundred percent increase in economic activity. Just that single invention, because it's a lot easier to unload the same thing over and over again than it is to unload a bunch of random sized objects. And my view basically is that in the same way that the web kind of containerized information into the standard thing called the website and later into an app, you know, on your phone, a token just allows us to containerize value. And so that's a way for people to take control of their digital selves because your digital wallet online can contain like your existing wallet you know, some money and things that have value, but also attributes about yourself, you know, your identity, um, how you access services like banking, healthcare, and so forth. And it's a way to put ownership into the hands of individuals. Now, in places like Canada, you know, we have laws that say that people own their own data, but for all intents and purposes, you know, nine, nine tenths of, of ownership is possession. And so if you don't have some level of control over it, you don't really own it in the truest sense of the word. And so that's the one of the uh, benefits of this uh, technology and of this new web is not only that we can 
improve the efficiency of commerce with tokens that make everything faster and cheaper and more accessible, which is also true, but we make it easier for people to control their own digital selves. You described it as the read, write, own web. And I'm just curious for people who may already be sort of struggling with web two to sort of catch up to web two, sure. what would web three look like? What what might that look like in its earliest incarnations? And I suspect in some ways we've already seen what that might look like. We're just not able to recognize it for the future just yet because there's so much out there that it's hard to pick which one, where exactly the wind is blowing. Definitely. So I think that Web3 is an evolution of the internet. It doesn't mean it's a totally different internet. So in Web1, we access the web using a desktop. In Web2, we access the web using primarily smartphones, but still desktops. So there is still, you know, the, the, the existence of websites where you go and access information is still something that's part of our lives. So Web3 will exist with aspects of Web2 and Web1, right? So I hope that that sort of makes sense. But what Web3 adds is this ownership layer. So basically, Web3 starts with the premise that internet users should be internet owners. Now, a lot of times um, in Web3, when a new application gets launched, they basically allow early users of the application to earn a share in that application if they're using it a lot or if they're adding value to it. So think about the early days of Facebook. I, was a, I happened to be a student at an American university in 2004. Um, and that just so happened to be exactly when Facebook was launching. So I was one of the very f- first people to get a Facebook account. And I was really eager as a user. I built a social graph. I used it for almost everything. That's what people did back back in the day, back in the olden days. Um, now, I did it for fun because it was this sort of like free service and it was sort of um, cheerful and not so weird as it is now. Um, but in retrospect, you know, this is a company that's worth over a trillion dollars in value. The fact that I was contributing so much value in the early days actually helped to Facebook's to reach critical mass. So what Web3 says is if you're going to be an internet user, you might as well earn a share in the applications that you're using. There are already dozens of examples of this, Ben, in the world of Web3. Most of them are financial applications. Um, So applications where, you know, if you're using a, a platform to borrow and lend money, then you get to sort of earn a share in that platform because the more activity you're doing, the more useful you're making that that platform. But we're also seeing this being extended and applied into a range of areas, including into social apps, gaming, um, even things like physical infrastructure as well, which <laughs> will open another can of worms. So I'll stop there. But the idea is that, you know, Internet users should become Internet owners. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that I view Web3 also as kind of a toolkit in the sense that you can open this toolkit and you can pull tools out and you can apply certain aspects of it without like going full Web3. Right. And so that's where you see companies like, you know, PayPal or Visa or JP Morgan or LVMH or Pepsi or Nike or Starbucks, who all have developed um, some really interesting implementations of these technologies um, within the confines of their existing business. Alex, you've looked at some really interesting spots in terms of where this may uh, evolve. One of them is cultural industries, because it feels like uh, for a lot of industries, you know, we went through, and I always think of it as music, you know, we went through, uh, you know, sort of Naps, the Napster era into the downloads era, the digital downloads era uh, paid for into the sort of the streaming era. And you, you're saying that that cultural industries in general, whether it be movies and streaming, there's going to have to be a rethink about how this works. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll go back even further. And if you'll indulge me, we'll start in the Middle Ages. So <laughs> yes. in, the, in the Middle Ages, you know, performers, artists, artisans had to rely on a wealthy patron. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Mozart, Beethoven... 
da Vinci, they all had their masters, right? Whether it was the Medici's or the Habsburgs or what have you. And, you know, that was ultimately a lot of art sort of reflected the desire of the patron. What happened during the 20th century, starting in the 19th century, but going to the 20th century, is that technology and industrialization broke that model. So if you were a writer, you could write a book and it could be printed in a printing press and then sold to millions of people, a growing literate class of individuals. If you're an artist, you could create a lithograph and sell prints to people. If you were a musician later on, to your point, you could cut a record and then eventually a CD. And you could sell a unit to a broad audience. And that happened to also coincide with the rise of a regular, like of a, a royalty and legal regime that ensured that creators could get paid. Now, they didn't always get paid fairly or on time, but they did get paid. And the 20th century, I think, in a way, we could kind of look back as almost like a golden age for creators. Now, the first era of the web was actually supposed to make this better for creators. You know, if you're, let's say you're a musician, like you might use a label to produce the album, but you don't need to go to Sam the Record Man or HMV or whatever and, you know, package things and 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 peel off value along the chain. You could sell directly to your customers and your fans, except that's not what happened, right? What happened was the web took this thing that was an asset and put it through the printing press, you know, the Internet of Information and turned it into a free commodity. And that's where we had, you know, file sharing, Napster, and so forth. So the two iterations you described, the digital download era, and then later the streaming era, you know, basically made things worse for, for cultural creators. Today, most artists know very little about how their music's being consumed and how much value is being created. And the amount that they're receiving, if you look at streams versus, you know, the cost of selling CDs, it's a tiny, tiny fraction of that amount. Right. And so in a way, it looks like the cultural model is under stress. Add to that the threat from AI. So artificial intelligence could maybe make make creators of all of us and grow the size of creative industries. But more likely what will happen is that machines will write songs and scripts and do visual graphics. And then they'll bring in a person at the last minute to, you know, put a human polish on it. But in the end, neither machine nor, nor creator will own the IP. It'll be owned by whatever company owns the, the, the AI model, right? And so in a way, like culture needs a new business model. <laughs> we need a new business model that puts creators at the center of the value creation. So there's there are three main ways that Web3 can help creators. Number one is that by having digital assets are just one way that creators can sell their cultural creations to fans you know it can be limited edition um you know uh, versions of songs it could be other digital merchandise it could be um you know what they call token uh token gated communities where you have like a you know sort of like part of a members only club right where you can get access to services that the or, or you know experiences that the artist creates and curates for you so that's sort of number one number two is that it allows us to fund creative ventures without relying on traditional um, financiers. So you can pre-fund the development of an artistic work by selling digital assets, which give the user and the owner some you know, say in how that cultural asset gets developed. And that's something that we see a lot in the video gaming world, for example. But the third one, and I think probably the most important and fundamental of this, is that if AI is going to be creating all of this stuff, all of this, you know, new content, whether it's scripts and TV shows and God knows what else, then we need to have a way to ensure that whoever, whatever IP that's based off of, the owners of those IP get paid fairly. 
So for your for your audience, it might just be helpful. Ten seconds on AI. So these are large language models, and they learn by getting trained on data. So the more data that you push into the model, the more you can train and tune the output. But where's all that data from? Well, that data belongs to me and you, Ben, and everyone who's listening to this. And it also belongs to all of the creators. So when you say, you know, write me a stand-up routine in the style of Chris Rock talking about Web3, which you can ask ChatGPT. Indeed, yes. It'll come up with a kind of mediocre version of it, but it will come up with a version of it. And where's that getting it from? It's getting it from Chris Rock. So is he getting paid from that? Like, so we need a way to ensure cultural creators get paid. Now, fortunately, there's a way to do that. So tokens, what I've described in the, in, earlier in the segment, can be programmed with intelligence to ensure that if they get bought and rebought or used and reused, it creates a revenue stream that goes back to the original creator. In the world of cultural industries today, there have been already 300 projects that have created at least a million dollars of secondary revenue, residual oh, wow. revenue. So not, not from the original sale, like royalty revenue, basically. So what if we could tokenize IP, tokenize cultural assets, so that whenever they went into a large language model and produced something on the other side, that it created a revenue stream that went back to pay the creators. We already know that this works from the world of NFTs, as I've just described it, and we can apply it to this. And we know that they're making money. OpenAI said that it's going to make at least $1.5 billion this year, and it just got off the ground. So there's going to be an enormous bounty from this. And in order for it to grow and, and for us to fulfill that vision, we need to ensure that whoever created this stuff um, is getting paid fairly. Alex, when you look at this, and I, you know, reading through the book and so on, one thing that I was struck by, again, you know, as you get older, these things make you, make you more fearful, is are we ready for it? Have we trained... In, in, and I mean this, and in, 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 you describe the sort of democratization impact of this, whereby somebody on the other side of the world in a country that is, is developing as opposed to developed, uh, that there is sort of a flattening of all this, where people really will be able to have opportunities regardless of where they sit. And that sounds like a really good idea. But I wonder whether whether we're ready for this kind of stuff, especially in places where I mean, my wife is from is from China. She always points out how Canada has been so slow to adopt mobile banking and so on. Uh, are we are we ready for Web three? Do you think in this country, or are we in for a surprise? Well, ready or not, you know, here we come. Like it's right. you know, Marshall McLuhan um, once said, <laughs> "People think I, I uh, I'm excited about the future because I'm always talking about it." He said, "I'm not excited about the future." I, I'm, I hate the future, but I'm not just going to let the zeitgeist roll me over. You know, I'm going to try and understand it. I'm paraphrasing. Now, obviously, I'm very optimistic about this stuff. And I do believe that this technology will have a democratizing effect. But it, but these things are happening, um, you know, whether we know it or whether whether we, we like it or not. Right now, in my view, the promise of Web3 is an Internet where individuals have you know more control over their digital selves. Um, they are participating more in the economic upside of whatever values created online. Um, they have access to a range of financial tools that allow them to connect with people all around the world in the same way that the first eras of the web allowed them to connect um, with communication tools with anyone all around the world. And it's one where, as a result, people have you know a little bit more privacy and a little bit more autonomy online. And I, I think personally, those are things worth striving towards and that's why um that's why i'm excited about them but you know as the book's title suggests uh the web3 the next the world's next 
the internet's next economic and cultural frontier. I should really remember the name of my book. <laughs> it's um, sometimes easy to forget the subtitle. The, yeah. the word frontier is the, the key thing I wanted True. to get. You know, like frontiers. Um, New. Risks and rewards. Yeah. Frontiers attract the, the, the savviest business people. They attract the, the most, um, you know, ardent missionaries. They attract regular folks, homesteaders who are driven by opportunity or circumstance. They attract crooks and, you know, charlatans, and they um, have their fair share of pitfalls. So, you know, it's not without risk and not painting some Pollyannish picture of the future. Um, it's not without risk. And so that's why I hope with some humility that if you're going to hit this frontier, that you'll use my new book as a guide, basically. And what do you tell people? And the book is is a great guide. But what do you tell people out there and how, on how to prepare for this? Because it feels like this whole notion of continual education. In other words, you should always be trying to at least keep up with what's happening around you, uh, even though it's quite easy just to turn off the phone or close the laptop and ignore that in some senses, it's kind of up to each and every one of us to be paying attention to how this is evolving, even if we may just be doing it because that's what you do. And I mean, I don't think any of us knew how to do what we're doing right now, which is, you know, recording a Zoom call three years ago. But here we are. Right. Uh, we yeah. do pick it up, but it seems imperative upon people to also to be curious and to continue to learn if we're going to adapt to what's coming. I, I think that's right. You know, when the first automobiles were invented, there's a story, it's probably apocryphal, that they said there would never be more than 100,000 cars on the road, because that's the that was the number of trained chauffeurs at the time. Right. And so that nobody could contemplate that people would drive their own cars. And in the 70s and 80s, they said personal computers would never take off, because managers and professionals didn't know how to type. Typing was for secretaries. But of course, that's not true either. So now, you know, every time this stuff comes along and we adapt, we're human beings, we're, we're a very adaptable species. And I understand that change can be tough sometimes. But if you keep an open mind and, and to your point, remain educated, I think that you'll benefit a lot from, from the change that's coming. Alex, uh, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.